right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of your Adrenal Fix podcast, where our mission is to teach exhausted and burnt out adults the truth about adrenal fatigue so they can get their energy back quickly. I'm really excited to, in, to introduce my guest and my new friend, Dr. Sam Shea, DC. He helps biohackers and entrepreneurs, mompreneurs, and service professionals increase their energy, resilience, and creativity so that they can create and sustain a great business to create more personal freedom. Dr. Sam, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Joel. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no. So listen, uh, most of the health practitioners that we talk to, probably every single one of them have their own personal story, Sam. And I know you have your own health journey starting from six to 18 years of age. Why don't you let the viewers know what you've gone through and how you got to where you got to today? Sure. So my my story is started really at six when I had my first sentient memories and my family went through a, a nuclear divorce, as I call it. And my sisters and I were in the blast radius of that pretty, pretty traumatic divorce. And that began a cycle of 12 years of a sugar addiction, a video game addiction and screen addiction. Uh, severe insomnia where I had trouble getting to sleep, uh, would wake up at 3 a.m. on the dot and then be woken up by this loud blaring alarm to crawl out of bed to go to a school that I didn't like and was humiliated and assaulted on a regular basis for years. And so it was like a war zone at the house. It was a war zone at school, an emotional war zone at house, not, not a physical one. And um. I had, uh, I also had an eating disorder of overeating, uh, but fortunately I had a metabolism of a bumblebee. So it just burned off everything and was in chronic pain from the injuries, from the assaults, as well as sitting all day at school or in front of a television to numb out and severe bowel issues. Like I couldn't, I had constipation, couldn't go once every three to five days for 12 years. Uh, and I was told that was normal by my parents who were both medical doctors and the diet I was, I had my cholesterol checked at age seven because they were concerned about my cholesterol as two medical doctor parents in the eighties are led to believe such things. And my cholesterol was deemed too high for a seven-year-old. And I was put on a high carb, low fat diet, which was probably the worst thing possible for me given based on. I mean, all of these things I say are, are they're, they're harrowing and they're awful and all in collection and there was, but the flip side of it is I came through the other side, having to learn all these other fields in order to pull myself out of this hole. Uh, and then genetically, one of those is genetics. And I, I genetically tested myself for my optimal diet and I am genetically more of a paleo paleo diet with some keto tendencies, I'm not genetically predispos predispositioned towards Mediterranean or a high carb, which some people are. Uh, and that was, you know, that's a just further detailed discussion we'll have a little bit later on. But for me personally, the high carb diet was a terrible, terrible, terrible idea for me constitutionally and genetically on top of literally everything else. So I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. Uh, I, I knew I was going to be a doctor at age six. I just didn't realize I'd take a sharp turn into natural medicine. And what happened was that in high school, I basically was at a fork in the road that I'm either going to fix myself or off myself because this is the depression, the anxiety, the, the ill health, the, the, the humiliation. Like it was just getting too much. And I made the decision to heal myself. And uh, I, 
with the help of certain mentors and books and just this new vision of learning natural medicine, it gave me hope and inspiration. So I went, I mean, started at age 16. Uh, it was when I really got, I mean, I had the problems for at least another two years as I was trying to figure this out and certain things lasted longer to resolve, but the, the, the some of the major things uh, really started to turn around. And I went to university and did a pre-med degree, but also did a holistic health practitioner degree in the evenings and weekends while all the other students were having, you know, dramas and drugs. I was learning meditation, going to, going to weekend courses, uh, even, even took some post-grad stuff at the local acupuncture school while in college, just that things were open. Um, and then went to chiropractic school after an interim travel period and just really drilled into nutrition and especially neurology and neurology I picked as at the time was a master subject because to, to know neurology, you had to know biochemistry, physiology, anatomy, nutrition, pathology, microbiology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in chiropractic school, we learned about what was called the triangle of health and the triangle of health uh, was a construct developed in the late 1800s by the founder of chiropractic, D.D. Palmer. And it was at the, you know, trauma, toxins, and thoughts or stressful thoughts. And at the time in 1895, that's a brilliant model. Unfortunately, today, it's, it's a bit simplistic. Uh, the, there's many more things. If you say to someone, hey, I'm going to help with your trauma, your toxins, and your thoughts, like that's, that's kind of vague and, and nonspecific. And so what I did is I took that triangle of health and I updated it, you know, false modesty aside, to the 10 pillars of health. So the brain was put right in the middle. And um, in fact, I'll just put on a, uh, uh, a visual, Oops, wrong, wrong visual, hold on. I'll just put on, there we go. So the 10, the 10 pillars, do you see that Joel on the screen there? Yeah, I can see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the 10 pillars is, is a, it's a, it's a circle and in the center is the brain. And the reason why I put the brain in the middle is because um, the hypothalamus is arguably the center of the brain because it interprets not only location wise, but also it interprets the inputs from biochemical input, physical input, and mental emotional input. And it's the boardroom. It makes a decision about are we under stress or not? Are we under threat or not? Will we go through an adrenal sympathetic stress response? Because are we in survival or not? So the brain was in the middle. And then the physical corner of the triangle, I split into three parts, uh, bowel, body, and burst. Bowel is uh, digestion and absorption. So how well you chew, how well you poo. Uh, it's also my sense of humor that it's bowel is pillar number two, as in going number two. So it's a little bit of nerd, nerd humor chucked in there for fun. And, you know, a lot of people spend a lot of money on good supplements and organic food and other things, but how well are you absorbing it? How well are you digesting it? And are you eliminating the residues that need to be excreted? So the rhetorical question I ask is like, how long would you live in a house with a toilet that couldn't flush? Not very long. And it's the same thing. If you don't eject waste properly and, and it's an utter lie that, utter complete lie says, oh, if you just poop once every two to three days, you're fine. It's a lie, total lie. Um, our, our Paleolithic ancestors pooped 
uh, uh, once per large meal, you know, to, to make room for whatever else is coming through. You have to go every day and eliminate. And uh, it's if you don't, you get backed up and you, you create what's called autotoxicity, where stuff leaches back into your bloodstream. And chewing, you know, digestion starts up at the top, you know, chewing the, the cheapest, the cheapest supplement on the planet is simply to chew more, <laughs> chew more, that way you absorb what you have. And uh, there's, there's lots, there's lots of those neurological benefits, there's all sorts of things. And I know some people listening is like, Oh, wow, this is real, you know, magic stuff, Dr. Shea, while wow, you're telling us to chew and poop. Wow. It's, it's, of course, there's many layers deep into the bowel pillar. I mean, there's, there's gut testing, running advanced profiles, like checking for hidden, you know, hidden infections, the actual digestion markers. Are you actually digesting proteins, fats, and carbs, etc. But this is just a big picture overview. The third pillar, the, that's bowel. The third pillar is body. Now body includes several things. It includes uh, untreated injuries. It includes poor posture from people like sitting all day. It includes um, uh, bad dental work. You know, people who have really bad dental work that can ruin your life. And it also includes genetics. Now, why is genetics in the body? Well, look at twins. The reason why they're twins is because they have identical genes. So the, the genes determine the shape of your body. And uh, genetics is a huge and burgeoning field. And there's, there's people are being, I, I feel misled in terms of the efficacy of genes today. And people are chasing after individual genes, like people chase after an individual. It, it's, it's a allopathic Western mindset. There's one cause, one cure. So if I'm a lot of people chase after an individual gene here, an individual gene there. That's not, um, that's, that's, that's allopathic genetics. What, what I do is called functional genetics, where I don't look at an individual inflammatory gene like interleukin-6 or TNF-alpha. I look at 15 genes and I look at major inflammatory genes that are upstream controllers of all the downstream ones. And I look, is there a pattern is there a problem with the inflammation pathway as such? Like, is it not just one gene? Is it like 10 or 12 of those genes that are of negative variance on it? And that way I know this person has an inflammation issue, not a specific gene we're chasing after. So it, it's looking at it from a much bigger lens and then finding out and, and, and figuring out based on the research, what are the fewest number of lifestyle interventions that beneficially affect all or most of those rogue genes, as opposed to giving, you know, 15 separate things to do, you find the couple that actually influence all the genes. So it's an 80-20 principle, basically, when it comes to genetics. What's the fewest number of genes that require the most amount of attention? And what's the fewest number of interventions that can help those fewest number of important genes? So that's the third pillar, uh, body. Fourth pillar is burst, which stands for burst exercise, it's movement. So those three pillars, bowel, body, and burst exercise, that's, that's the physical section. So it's all movement, uh, it's all the body in different ways. Burst exercise is looking at movement, uh, how too much, too little, wrong type, not enough variety. Uh, I don't use the word exercise because that's a real trigger word for certain people that, that exercise is laden with guilt or there's not enough time and so on. So I call it like movement. All my pillars begin with a B. So that's why I picked burst because it was a variant of the term burst uh, high intensity interval training was burst training. 
So I have an article on my blog, which I've diplomatically entitled why marathoners look like cancer patients. <laughs> and uh, there, there's, you know, from a, if you talk about adrenals, um, people who marathon, they have a really high consistent load of cortisol, but they don't get a concomitant release of growth hormone and testosterone to regenerate the damage from cortisol, you know, breaking down tissue. And that's why when you, when you marathon a lot and you train for marathons, that you have a really high chronic cortisol load, which erodes away all your muscles equally. That's why you look gaunt when you're a marathoner, as opposed to high intensity interval training. Um, they look amazing. Like you just look at any Olympic sprinter and they look a thousand times healthier than any marathoner. And so I'm a fan of high, a mixture of movement and high intensity interval training. Uh, but there are some genetic variants. Some people are genetically more suited for some more moderate uh movement patterns. Um, so that's the move. That's the physical corner. And then the biochemical corner of the triangle is split into three parts, biotoxins, bionutrients, and breakfast. So biotoxins is self-explanatory. It's things that are harmful to your system, whether it's off-gassing, insecticides, pesticides, uh, pollutants in water, air, food, um, things that, that you absorb through your skin, uh, toxic makeups, toxic uh, things that come off of dyes and whatnot in clothing. Um, some of the, some of the, the, the easiest, uh, and least expensive things that people can do to improve their health. Like it, it's rarely, is there any one single toxin that affects people today? It's just this collection and coalescing of, of hundreds and thousands of different toxins that synergistically wear down the body over time. That that's the real issue going on today. I mean, sure, people can have a major exposure, but usually it's like just this collection of all these toxins that just add up, add up, add up, add up, add up. So one of the best things people can do is to go is to look at all the personal and house cleaning products from dishwashing, washing machine, soaps, surface cleaners, floor cleaners, toothbrush, uh, toothpaste, rather, um, uh, skin products, soaps, shampoos, conditioners, and just pay the extra two bucks a bottle for the organic and natural versions of them. And also replace all your spices with organic, clean, fresh spices. Uh, and spices are next to organ meat and insects, the highest concentration of nutrients on the planet pound for pound. So, and the reason why is because they absorb all the minerals and nutrients from the soil uh, in a concentrated form. So if you have inorganic, unhealthy or spoiled um, spices, you're, you're taking in a concentrated toxin load. So again, one of the cheap and frankly, most delicious things you can do is just simply replace all your spices with really organic fresh. You can just go to any natural food store. And in fact, most normal food stores have an entire organic spice section. And, and it's the cheapest supplement you're going to get next to chewing more. So that's, that's biotoxins. Um, and of course, there's advanced labs and biotoxins where you're checking for heavy metals If people running an advanced mitochondria test. There's six liver pathways checking for the amino acids that are involved in say the urea cycle or um, the liver detox cycle, checking for heavy metals. There's all sorts of tests, functional tests that can be done on top of just sheer logic lifestyle interventions. The six pillars bionutrients, which is the inverse. 
and that's everything you need, you know, fatty acids, amino acids, minerals, vitamins. It also includes oxygen and sunlight, which you metabolize just like these other things. And so what we put, this is about what we metabolize for our benefit. Oxygen and sunlight is are two of those. So this is where diet lives is in bionutrients. And a lot of people get really hung up on the perfect diet to the exclusion of the other pillars. And you'll notice that all the pillars are roughly equal in size. Well, all the outer edges, the nine, first nine, the, the pillars two through 10 are all equal size. And the reason I did that is because I've met so many health fanatics that are just so fixated on, oh, it's all about meditation. It's all about diet. It's all about exercise. It's all about this, da, 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 da. Um, and, and they become totally imbalanced and, and one-sided. And I've seen clinically that uh, not everyone's priority is everyone else's priority. Um, there, there's a balancing act going on and the people's, some people's pillars are a higher priorities than others. Seventh pillar is breakfast which is not only eating a good solid starting meal, but it's also about routines, both morning and evening. And I found that uh, some of the sickest, uh, almost unwell people I've ever worked with as a profession have been night shift nurses because their routines are so thrown off by all this shift work. And it's just, just as a profession, they are, they are as a general, the most unhealthy group of people I've ever worked with. Because uh, they get all 10 pillars of the, all 10 pillars are crumbling in spades, but the real, real magic ingredient to screw it all up and ex ex exponentiate everything else is that their routines are totally messed up from the shift work. The uh, eighth pillar is bothers, which is, we're now in the mental emotional realm, uh, bothers bugs in bedtime. This is, bothers is a B word for stress, whether it's, uh, Marital stress, relationship stress, financial stress, cultural stress, watching the news, uh, clutter. I mean, it's one reason why Marie Kondo has gotten so famous, you know, the life-changing magic of tidying up. Um, electromagnetic fields for certain people, they're very sensitive to that. That's a stressor to them. Uh, I'm one of them, uh, but not everybody. So uh, for those that it is affecting, it's, it's, it's really troublesome. And it's, and it's like this invisible thing that you can't explain to people who can't feel it. The ninth pillar is bugs, which is hidden infections and mold. So uh, I developed these 10 pillars back in 2000, like, like they fully formalized in like 2010, 2011, when I was in New Zealand and uh, mold central over there. It's tiny islands surrounded by ocean on all four sides and really shoddy building buildings. I mean, just terrible. Mold is a killer for up to 25% of the population. It's just devastating. But it's also internal infections, whether they're in the gut or blood or elsewhere. So you're, if, if you have hijackers in your system, uh, it's going to affect you. And, and don't think for a second that infections only, gut infections only happen in third world countries. That's completely untrue. I've run, I don't know how many hundreds and hundreds of uh, stool tests, uh, people who've like never left the borders of their Western country, and they've they have hidden infections, you know, uh, and there's things that can be done naturally to help remove the infections and you can see them removed on post-testing and that they're not there anymore. Then the last pillar, pillar number 10 is bedtime, which is sleep, you know, uh, consistency, duration, depth, uh, quality. And I was a severe insomniac for 12 years. In fact, my, my next ebook, I'm just finished working on finishing up my, at the time of this recording, my genetics ebook, the next book, which will be a Kindle book, will be on sleep. And so I've, having 
learn everything I've had to learn to come out of severe insomnia, as well as working with clients, um, is is going to be in that ebook. And I can say that um, sleep sleep is probably in modern times the one pillar that is the most chronically sacrificed and least valued because and, and sabotage, frankly, with all whether it's blue light or deadlines or whatever it is, uh, that's the pillar that's chronically sacrificed. Now, four of these pillars can be sledgehammered, uh, meaning the massive singular events. One, the, the physical body one can be sledgehammered with either a literal sledgehammer taking it to the body or it's a car accident, violence, sports injury, or a, or a fall. Uh, that can crumble the whole edifice. Biotoxin can be a sledgehammer where you get a massive exposure to a singular tech toxin that you're uniquely vulnerable to. Bothers, pillar number eight, you can have a major stressful event, whether it's the death of a family member, an illness of a child, uh, a mass, a move, uh, a friend of mine's father's house just burned down this week from the fires, uh, a, 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 whatever it may be, that can be a sledgehammer. And then the pillar nine bugs, that can be a sledgehammer, a major infection, as we know during pandemic times, that, that can be a sledgehammer to certain people. So those are the 10 pillars. They're, they were developed working with chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, autoimmune, and severe adrenal fatigue of patients in New Zealand. And what I found is that uh, people who are chronically unwell had a minimum seven out of 10 pillars that were crumbling. And the reason why they were chronically unwell is because when you have seven pillars crumbling and then you try to jump from one protocol product or personality to the next, usually most practitioners are really, really good at one to three pillars, okay at another two or three, and then kind of not really well versed in the other four. But if you've got seven plus pillars that are crumbling and you're only addressing one to three really well and kind of meh on the other two to three, two, two or three, then you're in, you're in problem. You're not going to get fully well. And it's like you sit on seven tacks and you remove three of them. You're technically healthier, but you don't feel any better because there's other things that have to be dealt with. So those are the 10 pillars. And uh, again, they, they came out of the triangle of health and they've just been modernized to include, to include everything else. Uh, that's, and if you went beyond 10, it gets a bit unruly. I met someone who has 37 pillars or 37, whatever of health. And it's like, good luck teaching that, you know? So those are the 10 pillars, uh, again, arrived at, uh, not just theoretically, but clinically, because they were vetted on some of the sickest of the sick clients that were there in, in the town I was in in New Zealand. That's quite an intro. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So it all started with me asking you about your background, and I'm glad we delved into the 10 pillars, but I wanted to go back. Um, I'm from a traditional family as well. And, um, and so as far as when you decided, you said at six years of age, after going through the nuclear fallout with the divorce and the shrapnel and everything else in between, and then thanks for sharing that, that as well. I know that's a, that's a big thing to have to go through. And then of course you said, uh, abuse, uh, when you went through school, I'm sorry to hear that Sam. Um, but, but at the same time, it's the, the armor uh, and the battle scars that we take with us that that define us and make us stronger and ultimately has given you the path and the mission to help other people. And I'm really impressed with how well you've organized your, your 10 pillars 
Um, but what I wanted to get into is being from the traditional family of, of allopathic doctors, like, like I was as well, um, how, did your, how did your parents embrace or not um, your, your, your career choice of being natural um, and looking at the, at the whole 10 pillar uh, approach versus as you and I talked about when we first discussed doing this talk, the even the functional medicine doctors or uh, um, alternative doctors still do the 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 very reductionistic take this for that albeit it's a, a, a supplement so the question really is sam how did your parents embrace or not the career choice that you made given that they were from a an allopathic point of view well it's it's a it's an interesting question because over time the positions have flipped from when the original was originally sharing my intent so originally when i shared my intent with my mother um about i was going to be a, a chiropractor i mean really i i was a naturopath disguised as a chiropractor that's really that had to do with licensing laws back in the early to mid 2000s there wasn't a huge number of states that were licensed in naturopathy, but everyone was licensed in chiropractic. And then at the time, you know, for the most part, every state that had naturopathic licensing, the chiropractors had basically the same scope anyway. So why limit myself? And when I told my mother, she screamed at me because uh, when she went to medical school, the only people that went to chiropractic school were those that either failed out of medical school or couldn't get in. And, um, my father at the time thought it was a great idea, uh, even though he's an MD, PhD, and has published two books on moral injury and, and trauma. And he, he uh, discouraged me from going to medical school because he uh, thought that the trajectory of medical graduates was just to be a dispensary for drugs and less and less time with actual meaningful interactions with patients. And uh, he, he, he has a criteria for any procedure. Um, is it, whether it's natural or medical, is it safe and is it effective? Those two criteria, which is a very fair filter. Like, is this safe? Is this, is this effective? And he put, uh, he's had wonderful experiences long-term with uh, good chiropractors. And there are like with any profession, bad ones out there. Uh, he said he chiropractic falls under safe and effective. Now, uh, what what's happened over the years have gone by. My mother has now turned around and is way more open to the functional side of things that I do. Uh, and uh, and my father, who has since developed dementia, has become extremely resistant to the point of belligerent over doing anything nutritionally or lifestyle wise to help him because he, he is very much set in his ways and is preferring his small comforts and pleasures over long-term care, even though he's a famous medical doctor and all the rest of it. It's, um, and he's, it, it's the ironies are many layers thick and, and it's, uh, it's tragic on multiple levels. And, uh, I have, and, and the reason my father's become belligerent is because my, you know, at times belligerent because I'm coming to him with the 10 pillars model about the things that he can do to help preserve his brain 
and he's totally fine supporting me, adjust, you know, in, in the chiropr- his vision of me as a chiropractor. But as soon as what I do conflicts with his small pleasures and his personal preferences and comfort, then suddenly it's affronting and he gets all, he, he gets adamant and obstinate. And it, it's, it's a, a form of conditional accept, conditional acceptance that I will accept your career as long as it's non-threatening to my way of being. And that's, it's, a, it's, it's probably one of the saddest days of one's life when you realize that if you and your parents, you and your parent are in the same room, that you, the child, are the adult in the room now. That is, that is truly one of the saddest days of a child's life is realizing you're the adult in the room. And, and look, again, my father has helped hundreds of thousands of people through his writings and all that. And it's just, it's complicated. One can be a hero worldwide and a hypocrite at home. Many things can be true at once. And it's taken me quite a long road to be able to talk about this so kind of calmly. And so just, this is, this is what it is. It is as opposed to me getting pretty upset, as you can imagine, you know, being rebuffed. Um, and because I, I, I went out of my way to study all the things to do to, to preserve brain. I mean, I had a degree in, in functional neurology for Pete's sake, you know, as, and all these other things and, and, and to be proactively sabotaged and rebutted against uh, is, it was quite a learning experience. You know, it's, it's, I have a subspecialty in addiction. I overcome both my addictions. And this is, we don't have, this is not the discussion talk about addiction. There's this whole other podcast or 10, honestly. Um, But one of the key, when people come to me, parents reach out to me because I have a specialty in video game addiction and sugar addiction, but parents usually reach out to me for video games. Oh, my son or daughter is addicted to video games and social media, usually respectively. Um, And my first question is, do they want help or do they just need help? And then it's usually followed by very awkward silence and nervous laughter on their part. And they say uh, they need the help, but don't want the help. And I said, okay, I'm, then I can't help you. I'm sorry. And it's the same thing with my father. He, if he needs the help, that is for sure. And he's been literally handed everything he needs on a silver platter, but he doesn't want the help. So it's just, it's a lesson in acceptance and, and introspection and um, coming to terms with someone's life choices as painful as it is to watch and also to watch the knock-on effects of how it's affecting the family, how his brain decaying affects literally everyone else in terms of his loss of faculties and everything. It's, it's one of the, I mean, a lot of people want to run to the Himalayas and meditate their way to enlightenment and become accepting of all things. I'm like, why do you need to do that? Why don't you just sit in the room with your parents for five minutes, see how enlightened you are? You know, that's the ultimate training. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think that I, I chose my career also partly out of solidarity against my medical parents because I was it was what the, the, the tools at the time were so counterproductive for my state of health um, that part of me choosing natural medicine was out of defiance to uh, what the, the health trajectory that they put me on uh, was that the best motive part was that the, I mean, it was part love of natural and also part, you know, 
giving making the middle finger at my parents. Um, it, was that the best motivator? No, but did it work? Kinda. I mean, it's it got to me where I am today, and now I've resolved. You know, things with my mother and I. We're super close now. It's taken several decades, lots of therapy, and and real a lot of hard conversations. Uh, and you know, my father, we're, we're still working on things. His ability is a bit decreased with the dementia, but um, it's a lot more internal work for me now because he can't, he can't, he can't stay present with the dementia. Uh, and it's, it's tried again, tragic on multi, many layers. And, and for those listening, like I know for some of you, me talking about these trials and tribulations with my parents may, may or may not land, but my, what I encourage people to do who are listening to this, do the work now to try to resolve your relationship with your parents. I, I cannot tell you how tragic it is to have not started the real work with my father five years ago. It is so tragic because he, he now wants to, but his brain can't do it. He, he can't do it. And, and that is even more painful on some levels than him not wanting to work on the relationship with me at all. I mean that, and, and I hope, I hope, does that make sense? Like just how painful, like this, it's like, it, what could have been like, it was there, you know, and, but it's not. So, and I do understand truly that some people have fraught perhaps irreparable relationships with, with parents, but for your sake, for the, as a, as a child of parents, it's worth doing the work around it, even if they're gone or they're on in, in, in not communicable with or whatever, you can do the work on yourself because your parents are the two biggest filters by which you filter the world, mother and father. And we can get all Jungian about this and, you know, archetypes and everything. And there's major truth to it. Uh, resolving one's relationship with one's parents is probably one of the most meaningful and helpful things one can do. And to bring it back to the 10 pillars, that's under pillar number eight, bothers. And, uh, you know, some parents are sledgehammers in one's life when it comes to that pillar. Uh, others are not. So, yeah, a long, a long answer to a, a short question. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, thanks for sharing. And um, you can definitely see the hero's journey. Uh, one thing that I can see that's evident and, and a lot of things that you talk about, I want to I want to touch upon is that you got to practice what you preach and that's integrity, right? That's having integrity. It's hard for me to have someone give me advice that doesn't walk the walk. And, um, and with the parents, I've had the same thing. When my father is going through dialysis, my sister, his daughter is a real doctor. I mean, sorry, a, a family you know, doctor, whereas the chiropractic physician is not the real doctor in, in his eyes, unfortunately. Yeah, in air quotes, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I will, like, I went to visit him a year and a half ago and he was in the dialysis place and they were serving bread with like wonder bread. Can I plug my with, ears? Uh, can you yeah, say it? Yeah. With, with margarine. Oh, right? like so anyways, um, so I, I give my advice, which unfortunately goes in one ear and out the other. Um, and I, I think that's probably the frustration too, Sam is not only that he, he doesn't want to do the hard thing, right. And, and do the yeah. thing, cause it's really the hard thing. And, um, but at the same time, it's, it's not listening to 
you and you having the ability to help him when you know you can. Because I'll give him, I'll give him suggestions in terms of exercise with oxygen and um, getting some support for at the cellular level, being able to get those cells to respire better. And then I'm only met with, which I know it deep down, he's not going to do anything about it, but he needs to ask his doctor for if that's okay. Yeah, I know. And that gets, you know, gets super frustrating. And, and I think the lesson in that is really another thing you mentioned is, which I think is key. And I've told this to a lot of the patients I work with, I will care as much as you will. In fact, probably you won't meet another doctor unless you're talking to Sam that's going to care as much as you're going to care, but I'm not going to care more. You know, I'm not going to care more. I'm not going to drag you in kicking and screaming when you're in a, in a, in a, in a sinking, you know, ocean and I'm sending you the, the life preserver and you're, you're kicking and screaming coming in, you know, I'm not going to care more than you. And I, I love that question, Sam, in terms of does he want to change or, you know, I think that's great. Want it or need it. Yeah. 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 So I think that's pretty key. Um, as far as switching it up on you a little bit here, um, your ebook is called biohacking your, for, uh, biohacking your biohacking or biohack your biohacking. Yeah. So and I see you have the aura ring on. I have the aura ring on. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. So um, I know you have that in your ebook. What, what exactly is your definition of biohacking? And then let's talk a little bit on um, maybe swing into a little bit of the genetics because I have my my ideas and you have your ideas and I'd love to have a meeting of the minds on that. So first, let's start with biohacking. Sure. I can literally share the screen and show you my written. It's in the ebook. What is biohacking? It's literally right there. Uh, that wasn't oh. yeah set up. I just that was yeah. That wasn't set up. That's why I'm smiling. I was like, well, yeah. funny story. Here we go. Yeah, you know, it's a systemic way of thinking to identify the highest priority pillars of health and implement the smallest and easiest lifestyle changes that will give the greatest results in a meaningful, sustainable way. That's my definition. Right. So okay. The, why the book is called Biohack Your Biohacking, which to biohackers is a cute play on words, but and I let them chuckle, then I look at them very seriously. It's like, no, really, this is what this is about. Because the, the problem with biohackers a lot is that it's magic bullet therapy to them. That they're just trying to find the latest, you know, coconut oil extract or the latest blue blocker thing or whatever goji berry juice extract to squirt up their nose or whatever. It's 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 a, they're applying a Western medicine philosophy to a natural intervention. Western medicine philosophy is one cause, one cure. It is symptom based approach. This is let's find the one thing that's going to cure this thing. And Western medicine was born legitimately out of military medicine, where the symptom was the problem. If you're on the battlefield, you know, you don't diagnose someone as a field medic with bleeding eye syndrome or missing arm disease. Those are emergency care stabilizing issues that require stabilization. And so Western medicine is born out of the symptom is the problem that requires emergency, urgent stimulus, uh, stabilization. And that is utterly legit in real emergency scenarios. The problem is that when we extern is, is we, what's, what's the word when we, um, globalize this philosophy to non-emergency situations and everything either becomes, it's gotta be one thing to fix this one thing. And it's, 
we it's got to deal with it now. And it's only one it's, it's, it's a, let's find the supplement, the surgery or the radiation to cut it, burn it, poison it. And that's, and don't pay attention to anything else that may have caused it, contributed to it, synergized with it, uh, whatever. And this idea of biohacking and just trying to find the, the best frequency for your laser is, is a, it can careen into Western medicine, magic, magic bullet, magical thinking. And now all these biohacks, whether it's the coconut oil, the laser, the lights, the angling your bed to help with drainage, whatever it is, those are all legit tactics. They're tactics, not strategies. And people are confusing the strategy for the tactic. You can use all of those things, but what I'm saying with biohack your biohacking is take the 30,000 foot view first, look at the 10 pillars and figure out what pillar you need to focus on or pillars. So the amount of energy it takes to, if a pillar is at 80% of integrity, the amount of energy it takes to go from 80 to 90 is the exact same amount of energy focus and resources it takes to take a pillar at 20% to bring it up to 80. That's what I mean by biohack your biohacking. It doesn't exclude all these tactics. It just tells you let's focus on the right pillar to then pick what tactics are most appropriate to build up that pillar in question. That's that's really what biohacking yeah. is about. Yeah, for sure. And I agree. I, I like the term data tracking better. Um, and, and I like the idea that you've put it into different buckets. In fact, when I talk to the people at Aura, mm -hmm. as you know, they have the readiness bucket, they have the activity bucket, they have the sleep bucket. So mm -hmm. basically you look at it as you have 10 buckets and, and really, if you're really the, the, the worn and, and, and torn biohacker that you, that you say you are, then you really are into numbers and quantification of self. Um, so why not put it in a framework? And I like the idea of 10 pillars. Um, and here's how you quantify it. Um, certainly, you can have subjective 30,000 view foot symptoms or things that aren't working like fatigue and brain fog and stress and anxiety. But if we quantify these 10 pillars um, and, and be able to data track um, and come up with the study of one, if you will, of these are some of the parameters that you need to look at um, to, and here's some of the strategies that you need to be aware of, yeah, um, you know, yeah, so I, I love that. Um, as far as just for yourself, just as a nerd to another, in a nice and loving way, Sam. Yeah, I would just do the secret hand signal, you know, and just the yeah. little. Thing. Um, have you have you really dug into your own aura numbers, and are you oh, yeah. are you? Absolutely. Yeah. So the tracking. So the way that I, I totally agree with you on tracking, and so the way that I implement tracking, because uh, the ten pillars is a you know extremely useful practical construct to be able to organize one's thinking when it comes to uh, one's health or it's biohacking or otherwise. Tracking is crucial. I mean, the way that I track is I run functional tests. So I let the third party lab. So if we're looking at, say, the brain pillar, which is brain and hormones. So I do like adrenal testing where it's a cortisol awakening response, you know, the, or, or the Dutch test or whatever, or you're doing advanced thyroid panels. Um, so I track with that lab in there that the bowel and bowel labs you run, you know, and most of these major, they all have, you know, everyone claims that their poop test smells better. 
you know, <laughs> and right. that that tracks pillar number two and pillar number nine for bugs because these stool tests check for infections. Physical body is the entire swath of genetics testing. Uh, burst, that's the, in terms of testing for tracking for burst, that's things like what's on the aura ring, whether it's, you know, how many steps or levels of intensity and frequency and, and rest periods and all that. Also on the functional labs, I really check um, the genetics because some people are genetically over inflamers. And if they exercise too much, they begin to put on weight because their right. body inflames and then it retains all this water to dilute all the infl inflammation. In fact, I presented at uh, a genetics conference on this very subject on case studies of people who over-exercised and put on more weight. And it turned right. out there, it was, it was specific genetic combinations that led to vastly over-inflaming. It was fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Biotoxins, there's plenty of ways to check for numbers, you know, lab tests, you know, whether it's liver pathways or toxins and metals themselves, Bio, yeah. you know, genetics, you can do there's genetic testing to see what your ideal diet constitution is. There's, you know, the advanced mitochondrial lab I run through Genova is, is basically a micronutrient test anyway, fatty acids, amino acids, it's mitochondrial support, blah, blah, blah. Uh, breakfast and routines. That's aura ring. I mean, the aura ring you can track. Okay. You say you went to bed at 9.30, but the data says it was actually 11.45. How do you square that? You know, And I find what I found is that on average, people's reported, this is just through me subjectively going through files and you know, just making notes, people's reported bedtime versus their actual bedtime is off by about 45 minutes. Like, like yeah. some of the most valuable data I ever got off an aura ring or sleep cycle. I mean, I've been using sleep cycle app for over three years. The most, some of the most valuable thing I ever got with a, with a patient or a client on sleep cycle was just showing them when they actually went to sleep over the past month and completely off, completely different from what they reported to me, not in a right. guilty shaming way. It was like, look, here's the data. You really want to deal with your fatigue let's look at the data and like, it's inarguable. Right. Like they can't, they can't deny that um, right. with right. bothers and stress. I mean, adrenal testing, that's a great way to measure for, for stress. There's also on mitochondria panels, you can check the dopamine and serotonin pathways um, sure. and measure, you know, how, how much, what your rest periods are with the aura ring. And there's other apps out there to track how much time you meditate or track things. Like, I don't know. I mean, I use well world, uh, you know, as one of the main apps uh, clinically people to track, you know, water consumption, did they meditate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can even track intermittent right. fasting. Uh, but and it's becoming easier and easier too, which is exactly. great. You know, it's, yeah. Especially absolutely. the ring. Yeah. I like, I love the ring because one, it's unintrusive. Like I, I don't like wearing watches um, right. and uh, a ring, like it's, it's, you know, it's a nice looking ring and it's, it, it's not, it's unless you rock climb or, or do construction, you can risk injuring your finger. Like what happened, I think to Jimmy Kimmel, uh, he had that sleeve pull thing. Uh, so I, the, the ring is, is an unintrusive, uh, data tracker. And, um, yeah, I love the it. Thing is, yeah, it's great. I, 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 you know, as like you work with people that are exhausted and burnt out and I find that, and, and they, be, they have that perfect storm of epigenetic factors overlapping with those genetic susceptibilities that create just the yep. train wrecks it. of the world. Right. Yep, you got and it. 
So, and then you get them doing so much data tracking, even if it's automatic, that in of itself becomes very stressful for having to do like chronometer and and then tracking all these things and and then being overstressed. But a couple of things I was going to mention to you, and I want to get into the genetics and get your you know compare yeah. notes sort of. Um, on the burst, um, I, I think about nitric oxide in that in that area. Um, I had a really great interview with Nathan Bryan. He is one of the foremost researchers in nitric oxide. And you talk about any, you know, first of all, a compound that is just very new in the world of research that isn't on a lot of doctors' radars is nitric oxide. Um, but it really has its hand in every cookie jar of health in terms of oxygenation, mitochondrial health. Um, mm. You know, he kind of basically broke it down, Sam, in terms of, you know, in, in basic, simple terms, health is having too much of something you shouldn't have and not enough of something you should have. Toxicities um, and deficiencies, yeah, exactly. Right, and at the end of the day, oxygenation and blood flow is, is really behind every chronic illness um, and nitric oxide. So one of the things I could say is, there are nitric oxide strips. Um, you could do that under the burst section in terms of measuring nitric oxide. Mm -hmm. um, but let's get into genetics. So I, I use a, another software different than what you use. Um, and I'm sure we're very similar in the way of thinking in terms of if you have some of these genetic susceptibilities, um, then these are the rocks that you wanna look under, under in, in your case, the 10 pillars. Um, because these are going to have the bigger domino effects, or they're going to have the bigger hinges that swing doors downstream, if you will. Um, and so um, what have you found, like in terms of you've mentioned the over inflamers, um, or the under, um, under firefighters, I don't know what you have for that. What do you have? Is that the same as the over inflamers? Um, so there, it, it's actually a comp, it, uh, yes, and. Um, so uh, normally there, it's a two, it's a two pack punch. There's, I break it and, and yes, I do have a screen share, of course. Huh. Sure. Um, so in the way that I address genetics is that the, the genetics approach that I take is look at, look for four criteria. One is what are the upstream, what are, do the, do, there's roughly 25 to 30,000 genes so how do you pick which ones to look at in regards to health? One is you want to pick the genes that are related to the drivers of all diseases, inflammation, cell defense, which is, includes free radicals and liver detox, vitamin D utilization, methylation, cardiovascular circulation, and then fat and energy metabolism. So I want to look at genes that are in those seven drivers. Then I'm going to look at what genes are then upstream. So what are the, you know, there's lots of inflammatory genes, but which are the key upstream ones, key, key, key. Then I want to look for genes that are at least 10% variations, a red or yellow dot, if we're using the red or yellow dot system, uh, in at least 10% variations in the general population. So I'm not checking from some super duper obscure 0.00001% variant. That, that's not useful. It is for the people that it's useful for, but for a general functional genetics thing where I'm taking a member of the population, I want meaningful, likely variations. And then most importantly, arguably the fourth criteria is which gene of the remaining genes, which ones have peer reviewed research done in humans, not wombats or guinea pigs or nematodes or whatever, 
that show that lifestyle, diet, nutrition alone can change the expression of these genes in a beneficial way. So, right. and, and then we rank order and look at clusters of problems, look rank order. So inflammation is the top of the heap because inflammation will control cell defense, vitamin D, methylation. You know, everyone has a hernia over MTHFR gene. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, let's look at the inflammatory genes above it that can, in, you know, or that, that really influence how MTHFR expresses. And by the way, the panel that I look at, there's 15 methylation genes we've got to look for, not just MTHFR, which everyone it's just- So far down for. their stream. Yeah. I mean, MTHFR is so far so down downstream. the stream. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so we look at what is the priority, then we look at clustering. I alluded to it before. So this is an example of clustering. This is a left side is one person's cardiovascular grouping. The other right side is another. And you know, when I show this slide to clients, they're like, you tell me which one's, which one you're going to worry about the person with, you know, six out of seven green dots, uh, or the person with six out of seven red and yellow dots. And they're like, well, it's obviously that one, the red and yellow dots you can worry about. So it's, but if we were chasing after an individual gene, like the AGT here is yellow in this person has six other green dots in the cardiovascular system, like, oh my God, they're in trouble. No, when you look at the clustering, they're fine. They're fine. You know, it's, and then when conversely, when you look at this, the other side, there's the NAD, PHCY, beta A, all this, you know, if you get into genes, you'll kick ass at Scrabble. Like you'll just get on a first name basis with all these wonderful medical terms. Okay. So it's, if you just look at that one green dot admit buried uh, over the other six yellow and red, like you're going to be led astray seeing that, oh my God, this person's cardiovascular is great. No, it's not because it's got six other major genes, red and yellow surrounding it. So that's an example why, why I don't chase after individual genes. This is like the best example I could find in my practice yeah. or just clear right. night and day. So in terms of inflammation, like, yeah, inflammation's top of the pile. Inflammation, you can trace back to like 80 plus percent of all chronic issues. You can trace back to inflammation briefly, just to some people like, oh my God, inflammation's bad. No, it's not. Inflammation is, it's a yin yang phenomenon. Too much or too little is problematic. What is the purpose of inflammation? And why is it that genetically some people are over inflamers and not? How could this be evolutionarily? I'll tell you, the purpose of inflammation is to heal tissue damage and kill infections. Now, as a hunter gatherer, and I'm hunting a large animal with hooves, teeth, horns, and uh, fangs and whatever, with a tiny stick, I'm hiding with a tiny stick, I'm gonna get gored, mauled, bitten, or trampled. And when you get bit, what happens? You have tissue damage and an injection of pathogens at the same time. So inflammation is there to kill the infection and to heal up the wound. So peep hunter-gatherers who had a more exuberant inflammatory response had a higher likelihood of surviving a bear bite. Does that make sense? So- Absolutely. Uh, this is why we have these variation now in inflammation. Now, to modern times, we're, we don't have, you know, we're not being bitten by bears on a regular basis, you know? So we have this evolutionary holdover, which does not match the current environment we're in. So we're, these over-inflamers are now hyper-vulnerable be, be, because they're, they're in the wrong environment for which their genes would be an advantage. So right. when people are over-inflamers, there's actually there's actually three issues involved. One, they over-initiate, 
which means that instead of a little Bic lighter of inflammation, it's a, it's a bonfire, or they, they, it's chronically perpetuated, they're, they're, chron they're, they're over perpetuators, or they're under clears. I mean, you talked about firefighting, you know, there's, there's literally the image of a firefighter versus a squirt gun. So if you've got squirt guns on patrol, these are the interleukin 10s in general, that are the anti-inflammatory right, genes. Peak one, two as well, would be ones as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the main, the, uh, my understanding of interleukin ones is that they're also part of the initiation cycle as well. Yeah, so interleukin ones, yeah, yeah, they are as well, but I don't mean to interrupt, keep going. No, it's, yeah. it's uh, genes are, they're complex, they're situational, like, like all these things, just for, for, as a clean example, we'll just stick to the interleukin tens as anti-inflammatory just for simplicity's right. sake, which, right. um, but so here's an example, a client of mine where she was an over initiator an over sustainer and an under clearer all at the same time. So this is, this is the same woman that she, she got a new uh, exercise coach. Who's one of these, I'm going to sound as nice as I can, uh, over enthusiastic um, trainers from the CrossFit ilk who thought yeah, no that pain, you, no pain, no pain. No pain, yeah, no, no gain. No pain, BS. And she put on weight, lost her muscle tone, and her hormone cycle got all messed up. Okay. And what happened is that she was not only an, she's an over-inflamer, an over-sustain. Now, what's interesting, all three of her CRP genes, which are the acute phase inflammation genes in her liver. So her liver got way more affected by the inflammation in terms of overwhelm. And then her, on her detox genes, she had some major, she, she had some variations uh, regarding estrogen in three separate meaningful spots. So what happened is that she got over inflamed from the over exercising. It particularly affected her liver and that, and then she couldn't clear estrogen properly because her liver was busy dealing with all the inflammation. Right. So what I did for her, aside from having some few choice words with her, we'll call him a trainer. Um, the few choice words for that trainer is that I put our anti-inflammatory diet, lifestyle, supplements, and estrogen uh, liver detox supports and cutting back significantly on her training, making sure there's at least one full day of rest, at least between each training session. And her muscle tone returned because she dropped her weight and her cycle is normalized. So this yeah. is this is a classic example of uh, a kind of the triad of over-initiation, over-sustaining, or over-propagation and under-clearing. And you want to talk about demoralizing? Let's talk about someone, the more they work out, the fatter they get. That is utterly demoralizing to somebody. So uh, this, this, the, some people just come to you defeated, just defeated that they right. can't lose the weight. And it's really an inflammation issue. Yeah. Well, you know, I'll say a couple of things in the trainer's defense, because I was a trainer for many years. Sacred cows are being toppled now with more research and Good. they're they're only doing what they what what traditional approaches have told you, like the same kind of concept where I can't tell you how many times I hate to admit when I first started. And even this is with an exercise physiology degree and a, and a certified strength and conditioning specialist, which is no BS um, certification. I, I it's really hard to actually get. 
Yeah. Um, hey, small meals more frequently. You know, that's what you do. And, and that's, you know, that's, you get that out of the textbook. But again, genetically speaking, um, maybe you're not lowering blood glucose but to the point where it never really gets that low anyways, but it's constantly stimulated. Anyways, it's, it's new paradigm shifts that we're learning now and we're being able to digitally customize for each client that we work with. Um, their nuances and understanding the perfect storm. Um, one of the things that got me in trouble though, Sam, I would say is I know, and I, and I do genetic testing on all the clients I work with, and um, we have the same similar thing, similar concepts in terms of um, over-initiation, over-sustaining, under-clearing. Um, but some of the challenges could be is where the epigenetic factors overlap with some of the gene SNPs that may not be on our radars because they're not polymorphic. Meaning in English, like we tell people, hey, if you have a homozygous SNP, instead of a nice eight lane highway, it's two lanes. And if you have a heterozygous SNP, instead of an eight lane highway, it's four lanes. Um, and if you have uh, no polymorphisms, it's eight lanes. So you don't look at the eight lanes. All oh, the eight lanes must be traveling fine but there could be a tractor trailer spilt out in the middle of the highway and that's inflammation, right? And so even if that person on that left-hand side doesn't have those polymorphisms, they still probably are having major challenges in all three areas because they're so over-inflamed anyways, right? So- Correct. Uh, and you, you brought you up find, a very, yeah. you're, you're absolutely right. And so this is why, like I, I made this slide showing the traffic light that even if someone is a green dot, Right. And they have a bad lifestyle, knowingly or unknowingly, they can careen into a red ish territory. I mean, your genes, right. your genes will not change unless you're dumb enough to inject CRISPR. But the expression can be changed on a on a dimmer, right. like a dimmer switch. And so people who dimmer. have green dots, they don't. I've had precious few clients that have done their genetics where I had gene envy, like, wow. That is the biggest <laughs> sea of green I've ever, I've ever seen. And but some of them are in really bad health. And when I, yeah. I come to them and right. I say, okay, they're like, wow, my genes are great. It says, yeah. And here's the bad news of that. What you're going right. through is utterly self-inflicted and you can't blame your right. parents on this one. And right. <laughs> like, it's you so can't blame true. your parents. Yeah. So you're, you're totally right. There, there can be made. That's why, I mean, when it comes to genes, like that's why I look at priorities, like, you know, if you're worried about cardiovascular system, the cardiovascular system is way down the pike because you can look at inflammation, methylation, you know, uh, detox, vitamin D receptors, like there's all these things that can then really influence the meaningful cardiovascular circulation system. And, right. um, you know, I say when people look at the big picture of where do genes fit in on, um, I'm looking at the wrong slide deck here. Hold on one second. Actually, before, before I, before I go to that other thing, I just wanted to show like the three types of weight gain. So genetically, I look for three main weight gain types. The, the main one is inflammatory water weight. That's the one where people, you ever had seen someone eats a muffin and they put on like four pounds like even though, unless that muffin was last Christmas's fruitcake, it didn't weigh four pounds, right? So how did they gain four pounds? And it's because the, the muffin inflamed their body so much that they, they took, they withhold, they held on to water to dilute the inflammatory chemicals. 
in order to so that the buy time for the liver to filter them out. The other type of genetic based weight gain I've seen is hormonal toxic weight, where they have issues and SNPs in their detox pathways. And so the body will throw toxins into the fat cells or the what I call the dirty closets of the body, just to like get it out of circulation. And then the third way is caloric fat weight, which is what people typically think of as, oh, if I eat calories equals weight gain, which you and I both know is so outdated. Uh, and the, the vast majority of weight gain I see today is inflammatory water retention weight. Right. I would say also too hormonal, like, cause we talked about you, you touched upon it in terms of mm-hmm. um, these advantageous genes, hundred to 200 or even longer ago are no, are, are actually the, 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 the least healthy genes in today's day and age. And that's mainly because of how crappy and toxic our environment is. And yeah. what used to be advantageous in the past is, is no longer advantageous now. So, hey, listen, I, I appreciate all the time you're giving me here, Sam. I'm, what I usually like to do is when I'm asking sort of my, my ending question, I ask my guests this question. And I, again, we will, if, you, if you're up to it, I would love to do part two and part three, because I, I think sure. we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg here. Um, but with that being said, um, knowing what you know now, and it's hard, it's a harder question to ask someone like yourself who walks the walk, who's been through the trials and tribulations on their own, has had to come up with these, these 10 pillars to ultimately, whether you knew it or not, help yourself first so that you could help all these other people that you're helping. Um, it's a, it's a bit of a, a skewed question um, to ask you, but what would you do now knowing what you know? Um, or tell the old Sam, um, or the, sorry, the young Sam, um, the long time ago, Sam, um, that would have had the biggest health impact on the adrenals per se, because that's what my topic is, is overwhelm, stress, exhaustion, HPA axis dysfunction, continuing of inflammation, crappy firefighters, mine, 10 pillars, all of the above. I'm interested to hear your, your answer on that. So what would the, the, the seasoned Sam tell the young Sam? Um, what would have been the best piece of advice, do you think? In regards to adrenals? In regards to just overall functioning, overall feeling great, being healthy, um, having energy, lots of vitality. I mean, just in over in just in overall body health or even words of wisdom for anything, you know? So um, what will be the single biggest mover? So as a child who's not in charge of his own agency with his health back in the six to 18, you know, when I got into teenagers, I had more agency. The single most important thing that could have changed my life was data gathered by a skilled and caring and competent clinician. That wasn't, that opportunity was not given to me. And if I had me, I mean, this, this, you know, this sounds kind of self-referential, but if I had me as my clinician back then, it would have cut decades of strife and struggle and heartache and backache off, you know, my timeline. And but would you have been willing or would you, would you have needed it or would you have wanted it? I wanted it. It was my parents who didn't want me to go see to other, that that's the issue is that 
the the sing, the single most important thing you can do is to want the help. That's bar none because right. you can't do anything without that. Right. Putting putting that aside, the most important thing that someone can do is to work with a skilled, experienced, competent, caring clinician. Because as a layperson, if you're listening to this, this is you don't know what you don't know. And what's worse is what you think you know to be 100% true in all cases. That's that I forget the fancy term. What's it's not what we know that puts us in danger. It's what we what we think we know that is unchanging is is most dangerous. Right. I I'm butchering the quote. I don't remember who All said right, it. Right, right. I get what you're saying. It's like the George Costanza approach. Just kind of do the opposite to what you think is the the, the real right. way of doing it. <laughs> right. Um, so that's work with a clinician that that relies not on their ego or their precious model, but that relies on the science and the data. What I call functional medicine. It's functional medicine, you know, it's the best of Western medical medicine diagnostics with the best of natural medicine lifestyle interventions. We can use all the wonderful science and toys and diagnostic tools of Western medicine, science and technology, yet implement based, based on data, what is the most effective natural lifestyle interventions based on data. And, and that is the best marriage of East and West that I have found today, whether it's genetics, stool tests, adrenal tests, mitochondria, it doesn't matter. It's the same approach. Lifestyle plus science, you'll get the best result you can under supervision. It's really a fraught universe out there where people can listen to five podcasts and think they're an expert. You know, it's, it's, it's nuts. And, right. uh, yeah, work work with the experts, and ideally yeah. someone who has been through something parallel or similar to what you've been through. Yeah, I think it's great advice, and I think even too, the the clinician has to be humbled enough to know what they don't know as well, right? Yeah. And admit it because aren't you overwhelmed with knowing? Oh my gosh, when there's something that just gets on your radar, or just when you think you know how to help someone, they'll send that really tough client to you that has a crazy storm going on with them, and it's very uh -huh. humbling. You mean Tuesday? Um, and you, <laughs> yeah. Then you you learn. Like, okay, I don't know all there is to know, but I'm willing to get a battle scar out of this, like we talked about. Why so we call it I a practice. Can... This is why we call it a practice. Yeah. Right. But they have to be willing to admit that because if the doctor says they know it all, that's no, where you got to run. Run, 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 run. I mean, my, yeah. what I work with clients, what I, when I run labs, I always make sure there's a second pair of uh, HIPAA compliant, of course, second pair of eyes on the lab. So like I'm good. I, 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 when I do, I do lab packages with people. It's, it's almost always a minimum adrenal gut and mitochondria test. And then, and then you kind of layer on top of that. So it's like, I look at the lab synergistically and then I go to the niche experts like, okay, you've been studying this hormone test for 20 years. Here's what I see in it with the case study, et cetera. Am I missing something here? Because you've looked right, at these right. tests for a decade longer than I have, you know, but right, they right. haven't looked at all the other tests. Like, like I'm, I'm right. like the quarterback. So well, you I also have the 10 pillars too, right? Correct. So, I have know. the 10 pillars. I have the 10 pillars. I have all the other labs of the entire, 
but I, what I, but I talked to the lab experts on the specific niche labs also after reviewing just to, you know, for lack of a better phrase, double check my homework. You know, if people are going to invest right. in functional testing, I certainly would want an additional pair of expert eyes on this thing. You know, so right. when people work right. with me, they're not just working with me. They're working with an entire team that they don't talk to or see because right. I've got all these mentors and lab scientists behind me that I cross check all the labs. And right. that is where the true learning happens and the true humility happens because it's like, oh, I didn't realize that a two standard deviation difference between venyl mandalay and homo vanillate was actually a copper deficiency. I didn't read that anywhere. Right. You know, so. Yeah. It, yeah. Or vitamin C or DBH yeah. or clostridia, you know, all those things would happen as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, that happens a lot. Do you, let, just as a quick aside in terms of, I've been I've been finding a lot of iron oxidation, um, iron transportation, um, iron utilization, iron absorption, copper availability, um, vitamin A uh, processing. All of that will adversely impact iron. Are you finding just as a clinical pearl before we check out here um, that being a really relevant finding with the clients that you're working with these days in terms of just how well they're using oxygen and iron? So when when I run oxygen oxygen studies, when I run iron studies on clients, and so like for example, like I run like the Genova's you know ion panel, and you, you get the add-on with the thing with that puts the iron and some thyroid markers and all the rest of it. When I'm looking at oxygen, I'm thinking oxygen and iron as part of the journey to mitochondria. To me, the endpoint is mitochondria, not the iron or oxygen itself. And so when I'm looking at someone with mitochondrial issues, iron is a huge part of that because you can't, mitochondria don't work unless the oxygen gets there and the iron is the transport mechanism to get there. And if someone's dealing with uh, some iron issues, um, there's a whole multitude of things, as you know, that can go wrong. One of my favorite tricks to help people in the tricks, the recommendations to help people with their iron levels is to find a clean, organic, I know it sounds odd, tasty source of liver because you get the vitamin A and the iron and all the, all the copper and all you get, you get all the nutrients basically you need for iron from eating liver. And there are now liver pills can people, people can take. Um, I mean, we learned at Mindshare about uh, this guy who's creating a, a spice, like, like a spice mix that has organic, like ground up liver and organ meats in it. And it tastes good. So people can get their organ meat from like a spice mix. Right. Um, and, and that's, uh, and of course there's other things you got to check for like intrinsic factor, like, like you got to check their stomach, you got to check their, their, their digestion, all these other things as well. What I'm finding, um, when people are having difficulty absorbing, one of the most overlooked things that I have found in practice is people's amino acid, specific amino acid deficiencies. So when I run like an ion panel, it actually puts the amino acids in a five quintile distribution. So anyone who's in first quintile or lower of an essential amino acid like lysine or glutamine or whatever, to me, my priority is let's get the essential amino acids up first because they're the core of building of you know everything. And then maybe the whole other absorption issues will sort itself out. 
because now they actually can, they do have the tissue foundation to actually absorb it. And like with all functional medicine, everything can like, there's so many, everything can cause and feed everything also. But, you know, I would, if someone had a meaningful iron issue and essential amino acid deficiency also, then we deal with both at the same time. You know, right. we're not yeah. chasing magic bullets here. No, absolutely. So yeah. what I, one of the clinical pearls I learned recently, Sam, is the fact that um, iron metabolism versus iron deficiency. Because in the same person, you can have what is absolutely an iron deficiency, but they're not iron deficient in their body. It's not getting out of tissues. It's not being transported out of tissues. Yeah. It's oxidizing and it's creating hydroxyl radicals and it's depleting those that are weak firefighters. Um, and then they yell at the deaf person louder and they're taking more iron and um, they're not necessarily fixing where the iron is being improperly metabolized. I, I find that to be hugely problematic, more so than I have ever anticipated. And, and I think, unfortunately, what feeds that is the crazy distribution of lab ranges of ferritin from like 30 to 390 on the uh, oh, yeah. function on the lab ranges. It's just anyways, we can geek out about that on another on another podcast if you're willing right. to, to do that. Yeah, that's yeah. And, and which there are there are meaningful discrepancies between ranges on different labs. I mean, all you have to do is look at pancreatic elastase. And one lab says over 200 is normal. Another says over 350 is normal. And this is over 500 is normal. And right. like th this right. happens. And the reason why is because the labs base their numbers on the population normals that they sample that from. It. That took and, it there. Yeah. yeah. And so how they get to these numbers is how they get to these numbers. And so that's where you get the discrepancies. Yeah. And yeah. Where having a clinician, not just ordering the test yourself matters because as a clinician, we look at lots of labs from the same types of labs from different labs themselves. And we have the full clinical picture, whether it's the 10 pillars of health or some other model. And, and that's, it, it's really important that to, to kind of go back to work with a well-trained, skillful, caring clinician because the, the lab numbers are not always the lab numbers. You think they are because the lab normals can vary from lab to lab. Right. Absolutely. Awesome stuff, Sam. Um, I, what I will do is I will post the links to your free report um, as well as maybe you can just give us a little, um, you mentioned that you have, when we talked a little bit earlier, you have your own course. Um, mm -hmm. That's something that they could do for themselves. Can you give us kind of the, the, the elevator kind of explanation on what that is? Sure. So I have, uh, so I have an online course for the 10 pillars of health. I mean, it's called end adrenal fatigue uh, with the 10 pillars of health. And I go into the 10 pillars of health in great detail, uh, describing each one, meaningful, actionable things you can do for each one, understanding them, how you can assess, you know, where you're at. And it's a self self-paced online course. There's no grades, there's no tests. Uh, you can just watch, uh, it, it's, you, you can watch uh, a full explanation of the pillars in detail. And uh, this way, you know, it's, people should get it, not just because they have a health concern. They should get this course because once you learn the 10 pillars, you can literally contextualize everything you have ever learned in natural health that you ever have learned and ever will learn. Because now you can slot all these tidbits, you know, tactics, uh, clinical pearls, whatever, into their respective pillar. And 
you're no longer chasing magic bullets. You're just adding them to their respective parts. So now you can organize your thinking from that point forward on everything you ever learn and have learned in natural health. And that's the, that's the really important reason to get it. Even if you're not, you know, quote fatigued or adrenal fatigued. Right. 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 I always say like a lot of the same the, the same pillars, the same 10 pillars, I don't say it necessarily in that way, but yeah, sure. yeah, the, yeah. Same, the same challenges that are happening at the cellular mitochondrial level are happening for most or if not all chronic illness. It's just where are the weak links in the chains breaking downstream? Yep. Um, and some people it's fatigue, other people it's brain fog, other people it's insomnia, weight loss resistance, or all of the above. And the other thing I wanted to say just before we end is I appreciate sharing your information today. You've been completely transparent. Um, but also the fact that um, you, you said it when we talked the other day is we look at abundance and not scarcity, because I help people that have adrenal issues you help people that have adrenal issues and together we help people that have adrenal issues. Mm -hmm. You have a way of looking at the, the stage from a different angle. I have a way of looking at the stage from a different angle and mm -hmm. together you see a more complete picture. Um, mm -hmm. And I hope that's what we accomplished today, Sam. I, oh, I do appreciate your time Absolutely. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And, and I appreciate your generosity and having me be on your podcast. Uh, I love, you know, I love sharing this content, you know, at a minimum, I wish I had learned this, you know, 30 years ago. And, uh, you know, we're both doctor is old French for teacher. And, and our, the, the real job of a doctor is to, you know, a real doctor is to teach so that our job becomes unnecessary. And we have the benefit of things like podcasts and online courses that we can easily scale uh, knowledge uh, in a meaningful and, and just sustainable way. So thank you for what you're doing. And uh, you're, you're really fulfilling your role as teacher with this podcast, not this one specifically, but your podcast as a whole. So thank you for the mission that you're doing to help teach the, everyone about natural health. No, I appreciate it. And we'll to be continued. We'll we sign can. off as a to be continued. All awesome. right, thank you so much, Sam. Sure. Thanks for tuning into today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested to see if you're a good fit to work with our Adrenal Awakening program, here's what to do next. Head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply and book an appointment to speak to our team. Here's how it works. We'll get on the phone for about 45 minutes and get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, where exactly do you want to be with your health and where are you now? Number two, what are the genetic components that haven't been discovered that are impacting your health? And number three, what are the environmental triggers that may be overlapping with these genetic components keeping you from getting optimal health? Remember, getting your energy back just won't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make that happen. We've helped clients all over the world transform their lives, quadruple their energy, and fix their metabolism, and make the world a better place. To see if you can do the same thing, head to adrenalfatiguesociety.com forward slash apply. I'm Dr. Richard Joel Rosen, and we'll talk to you soon.